Jewish-American journalist Norman Cousins once said, History is a vast early warning system. This week, we speak with Oren Kessler, the author of Palestine 1936, who would likely agree and add missed opportunities. Ben-Gurion had, starting in about 1933-34, had a series of meetings with a man by the name of Musa Alami. And he and Ben-Gurion meet again and again throughout the early mid-30s. And they come tantalizingly close to some sort of uh, agreement before everything goes wrong, as tends to happen. Kessler's new book is about the first large-scale Arab revolt from the years 1936 through 1939. He argues quite convincingly that these years in British Mandate Palestine form the roots of the Middle East conflict. Kessler is a journalist and a political analyst based in Tel Aviv. He spent five years researching and writing Palestine 1936, and it's clearly a labor he loved. The book attempts to illuminate all three sides of the complex relationship between the British, Jews, and Arabs attempting to occupy the Holy Land during these formative years. There are so many lessons that have yet to be learned as we see this bloody history repeating itself even today. So this week we ask author Oren Kessler, what mattered then and why does that matter now? Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Oren, thank you so much for joining me today in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios. Thank you so much for having me. This week, we're going to do something a little different. And instead of talking about current events, we're going to go into our time machine and go back to 1936 to 1939. So this week, I ask you, Oren, what mattered then and why should it matter still today? I would say Jewish leadership, Arab leadership, uh, Arab violence, and Jewish violence, uh, one state, two state. That would be my express version, <laughs> express answer to that question. That's great. Okay, very stenographic. And so <laughs> we're here, of course, to talk about your new book, Palestine 1936, The Great Revolt and the Roots of the Middle East Conflict. And I have a confession to make. I really knew nothing about this at all, except for perhaps the the launch of the Tel Aviv port, which in terms of Israeli narrative is super important. But I have to say that the most 
salient point that I took from this book, and forgive my ignorance, is that there has been a Palestinian national identity for a really, really long time. Would you agree to that? Different uh, scholars have different (laughs) views on that, certainly. One of my central arguments in the book is that this period that I'm writing about, this three-year period, was extremely formative in creating that Palestinian Arab identity, which is not to suggest there was nothing before, but that this was really the crucible in which uh, virtually all strands of Arab society in Palestine united, uh, at least ostensibly united behind uh, behind the leadership of a man we will talk about, Haj Amin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti, but uh, united in a common purpose against a common foe, namely the Zionist movement and its imperial facilitators, the British, the British Empire. So when I was reading the book, I had the sense that I already knew all the players on the chessboard, but we rolled back the game to a starting point that I wasn't aware of. And so we already hear about David Ben-Gurion, Chaim Weizmann, the Mufti, as you mentioned, and a slew of other characters uh, in the Palestinian side that I wasn't aware of, sadly and very amazing, you know, crazy characters such as Ord Wingate. Crazy story, I hope we talk about him. But you're resetting the board in such a way that it really felt like we see a parallel starting point. Was that your intention here? My intention was really to fill a gap in the literature. I think it's safe to say this is the world's most written about conflict. Uh, the, the the bookshelf of all things Israeli-Arab is is creaking under its own weight. And yet, for some reason, this particular revolt and everything that emanated from it, this chapter in in the conflict and in the history of of Zionism and of this land, uh, hasn't remotely gotten its due in English. It's typically treated over a few pages in broader histories of the conflict, or at most a chapter. But there's been no general interest history of this, again, the revolt and all of its repercussions in English. And that was really the the gap that I set out to fill because I, I believe and I argue in the book that as formative as it is for the Arabs of this, this land, it's equally formative, arguably even more so uh, for the Jews, for the Zionists, for the conflict as we know it today, and even attempts to resolve the conflict, that so many facets of the conflict took shape in this uh, period. So that's really what I set out to do. And you can just sense as you're reading the book, and it was so dense and packed with information and characters that I digested it really slowly. I've been reading this book for months, as you know, and really enjoying it as much as you can enjoy a very tragic, bloody history at the same time, and just really learning and letting it soak into me as I was reading it. But at the same time, you can just see the same scenario playing out again and again and again, including, I would argue, the the missed opportunities of Jewish and Arab dialogue. You mentioned at least two incidences in which uh, David Ben-Gurion was in dialogue, and it just felt like, ah, if only, if only. So tell us about these instances. Uh, I really wanted to tell this story through people. That may sound like a bit of a cliche, but I really wanted this to be a book that that um, illuminates great historical events, but but through ind- individuals, through human beings. And I chose several characters on each side, and that's those are three sides. This is a triangle, right? The Jews, the Arabs, and the Brits. We tend to forget that third side. Uh, and um, 
my one of my main Jewish characters uh, will be known to your listeners. It's David Ben Gurion, who even at this time was essentially the undisputed leader of the Jews of Mandate Palestine, Eretz Israel, uh, the Yishuv, as we say in Hebrew, the pre-state community. And Ben Gurion had, starting in about 1933-34, had a series of meetings with a man who, who I chose as one of my main Arab characters by the name of Musa Alami, who is in many ways sort of forgot, mostly forgotten to history, but I had the distinct sense that he shouldn't be, that he's a really fascinating, complex, compelling, in many ways, but not always, <laughs> uh, sympathetic character. And he and Ben-Gurion meet several, again and again, throughout the uh, early, mid-30s, and, uh, and they come tantalizingly close to some sort of uh, agreement before everything goes wrong, as tends to happen uh, in, this, in this particular conflict. So it really does, it's one of the things in the book that really raises this tremendous what if, what if they had succeeded? What if it were Musa Alami who was the leader of Palestine's Arabs and not Haji Amin or some of, some of the other more hardline uh, leaders? So it's really... I thought it was really fascinating uncovering these these meetings, and as you mentioned, it's really there's a certain thread of tragedy running through it because of these uh, missed opportunities. Another theme that we're well aware of today in terms of modern history is, of course, the infighting within the Palestinian people. And whereas the at the beginning the revolt in 1936 was very grassroots, and then the leaders, of course, jumped on it and started manipulating everyone for their own you know agendas as usual. Um, it just appeared that the unity between the Palestinian different peoples, including Bedouin tribes, everyone seemed to be on board in the beginning. It just dissolved so quickly. And, and of course, we see that until today. Yeah, there are real parallels to the first intifada and, and perhaps even more so the second intifada in which, uh, particularly in the first intifada, a, it was very much a grassroots uh, uprising that then the, the the Palestinian leadership and the Second Intifada moved to assert its control over. And that's exactly what happened in 1936. This revolt began with acts of, of violence, of terrorism, but very quickly, the Arab and Muslim leadership embodied in the man of, of the Mufti, Haj Amin, rushed to assert his control, his political control over it, and to make these political demands to stop Jewish immigration completely, to ban land sales, and that was really the Mufti's sort of finest hour. That's really the period in which, again, at least ostensibly, virtually all of Arab Palestine uh, was stood behind him. That's Muslim and Christian. That's rich and poor, urban and rural. Uh, but in the as the revolt wore on, uh, particularly after the Peel Commission, which we can uh, talk about if we have time, in the sort of second phase of the revolt, that initial unity really uh, dissolves or rather explodes in a, in just a convulsion of Arab infighting and score settling and old scores between families uh, were being settled under the cover of this supposedly nationalist uprising. And, and, um, and so that's really one of the sort of, again, tragic templates that this revolt sets and which we see again in the first and second intifadas. There are actually three points, weren't there? It was no land sales, no immigration. And what was the third? Uh, I didn't want to get into the weeds, but you're a very uh, close reader. The third uh, condition was to set up a legislative assembly, which would accurately reflect the demographics of the land of, of, of Palestine, which were still 
probably 70, if not 75% Arab. And so the British were had hesitated until that point to set up such an assembly because, of course, if, if the majority uh, were given the vote on whether Zionism was to continue, they would obviously vote uh, no. So there were several points at which the British considered doing something like that. The Zionists brought their pressure to bear and the British uh, withdrew from that proposal every time. So again, I don't want to get too too much in the weeds, but the Mufti was demanding popular representation. But actually, it's the demography that arguably drove their anxiety and the angst, because in these years, the Jewish population, what, doubled, essentially? That's right. The Jewish population doubled in the first half of the 1930s. It's really incredible. And one thing I tried to do in the book was really bounce between the Palestine situation and the Middle Eastern situation and, and, and the European situation, because they're inextricable. They're inextricable for, for the British, but even more so for the Jews. And really, the, the backdrop to this revolt uh, really can't be understood without looking at, at Jewish immigration, um, because this is, of course, the period in which Hitler comes to power in January 1933. There are other anti-Semitic movements on the rise in Europe, in, in Romania and Poland and Hungary. And uh, Jewish immigration to this land is really turbocharged. And, and as mentioned, it doubles in just four years. And in 1935, just before this revolt breaks out, it reaches 60,000 in a single year, which was double the year before. So the Arabs are very much perceptive enough, not just the well-educated uh, elites in the cities, but even uh, farmers in the countryside are perceptive enough to realize that if things continue this way, the Jews will be a majority before long. There were a couple of statements from Chaim Weizmann, which of course resonate to modern ears, uh, post-Holocaust ears, that you read it and you're just like, was he a prophet? He talks about the six million Jews in Europe. When you first came across those statements, and tell us the context of his statements, first of all, but how did you feel reading this six million figure? It is chilling, and he, he repeats it several times in several different uh, circumstances. But they essentially, after the first six months of the revolt, the British agree to the to send a commission of inquiry to Palestine, the uh, the Peel Commission, the famous Peel Commission, which is a royal commission that's acting in the name of the king. And um, there are dozens of, they call dozens of witnesses, uh, British administrators, leading Zionists. Uh, the Mufti insists on a boycott until the 11th hour because the British haven't met his demands, but ultimately he relents and he testifies. And the star witness is Chaim Weizmann. We mentioned David Ben-Gurion earlier as the leader here in, in, in Palestine and in, in the land of Israel. But the, the, the face and the muscle of Zionism in the world at this time, uh, really throughout the mandate, was Chaim Weizmann. And this is another man who really has unfortunately been sidelined in Israeli history. He's remembered as the first president of the country, but that was really just an epilogue to his career. From the Balfour Declaration to really till 1947-48, he was the face of Zionism. Um, and he's a, he's a really fascinating character, a supremely charming and persuasive character by all accounts, who, who converted probably thousands of Brits to the Zionist cause, or at least to more a greater sympathy with the Zionist cause, solely through the strength of his personal charm. Uh, extremely well connected in London. But uh, so Weizmann is the first witness in this commission, and he essentially pounds on the table and says, six million Jews need a home, six million. And then I believe he repeats that figure later on in the, in, uh, the Brits call a, a conference in 1939, and he repeats that, that figure, six million, six million. 
And of course, it is it is uh, extremely chilling given what we know. And it's it's uh, I, I don't think necessarily that he was prophetic enough to know exactly what lay in store, but there was a deep sense of foreboding that this was a critical time for the Jews of Europe and that they needed to leave. I want to now talk about the craziest character of all, in my mind at all, at least it's Ord Wingate. And he was a nudist, apparently, and also a really born into a very, very uh, dour Christian household. He was, at, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but he was a nudist, a Zionist, and an Arabist. I, I think he's got to be the only person who, who <laughs> ticks all three of those boxes. <laughs> I think you're probably right that he is the only person <laughs> ever and perhaps ever will be. So tell us a little bit about his background and how he really changed the face of Israeli military might, in my opinion. And and in mine. He's a, he's a completely fascinating and com- arguably completely crazy character. He was um, but a, but a genius in many ways, by almost all accounts. Ord Wingate was born in in England um, to a very, as you mentioned, to a very, very devout family of sort of Protestant dissenters. You you, you could potentially, I guess, you could call them evangelicals these days, but they're they're called the Plymouth Brethren, and um, the the house was extremely dour, as you as you state. Um, I, 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 as I recall, they would wear black on the Sabbath. <laughs> That's what you wrote, at least. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> they would wear black in the home. They were, I, I believe they weren't allowed to sing. It was, it just sounds like an incredibly joyless home. Uh, but the young Ord and his siblings took, uh, took it all very, very seriously. And, um, Wingate of course, joined joined the British Army and was an extremely effective uh, soldier, but he remained an extremely committed Christian, and he was posted here to the Holy Land in uh, 1936, and he set about making himself known to the Zionists, and he really, it required quite a bit, he was really sort of courting the Zionists at first. At first, the Zionists didn't know what to make of him. He was, uh, he was an officer. He was um, he was well educated. He was well spoken. He was clearly well read. And at first, they thought maybe this is some sort of espionage situation. But he eventually proved to them, convinced them that he was really dedicated to their cause. Which was, and this was extremely rare among the British officialdom, whether political or military, here in the country. It was extremely rare to have um, to find officials who were even. Well, I don't want to overstate the case, but uh, the. It, <laughs> the average British administrator here, and I, I get into this uh, in the book, probably had more sympathy for the Arab side, even while many of them had a certain admiration for what the Jews were able to accomplish. Uh, but it was the exception to the rule to find an administrator who was genuinely neutral between Jews and Arabs, let alone pro-Zionist. And um, Ord Wingate, in addition to being such a fiery and committed Zionist, uh, was again, a, a military genius. And he began, he was the first to really include uh, Jewish fighters, Jewish soldiers in the British security apparatus and in, in any really serious way. I should say that this was the period, this is one of the main takeaways of the book is the, uh, for the Jewish side, is that this is really the the period in which the Haganah uh, or the, the, the main Jewish uh, armed group goes from being a, a a a network of glorified night watchmen and and becomes uh, 
transforms into the seat of a Jewish army. And Ord Wingate had a large uh, role in that. He created something called the Special Night Squads, which were mixed British-Jewish uh, units that operated at night and took the fight to Arab these Arab-armed uh, bands. And they were extremely successful. And these units included men like Moshe Dayan and Igal Alon, who really formed the core of the future IDF uh, leadership. He was very overtly Zionist. He uh, previously had been stationed in Sudan, I believe, and had taught himself or learned Arabic. And then when he got here to the land of Israel, he taught himself Hebrew. How did that go down with his superiors? Yeah, it was extremely rare for uh, British political or military uh, officialdom here to to learn Hebrew. Uh, it was it was extremely rare, and I actually found in the British Library I found copies of Ord Wingate's uh, Hebrew homework, and I didn't <laughs> it didn't I I wanted to include it in the book and an image of it, but we didn't have room. But it's really uh, it's 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 quite something. He's really extremely dedicated to to learning Hebrew. He even tries to give speeches, pep talks to his troops in Hebrew with mixed uh, success. But yeah, he's again, he's an extremely eccentric character. He had a habit of welcoming guests in the nude, as you mentioned. He had a habit of eating onions like apples. Uh, he was an extremely unconventional um, person, but the, the British army simply couldn't argue with his success up until a certain point. There was a certain point uh, in in the middle or end of this towards the end of this revolt that that uh, Wingate Zionism became a problem for his superiors and he was unceremoniously shipped out of the country. But until that point, uh, they simply couldn't argue with his success in taking the fight to these Arab armed groups and um, stopping sabotage of the oil pipeline from Iraq, which was a huge problem for the the, the British at this at this point. Um, so yeah, he's he's uh, definitely, probably the most eccentric uh, character in this cast of quite a few eccentric characters. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated, and honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, there are very few women that you include in the book because, of course, during that era, and maybe we should say until today, most of the world was run by men. But one of the characters that you did include just sounded like a really eccentric woman as well, and it's the wife of? 
Well, the wife of George Antonius is is uh, Katie Antonius is was was quite the character. Um, I I found their personal correspondence. George Antonius was kind of the the leading ideologue and intellectual behind uh, the Arab national movement, uh, the Arab nationalist movement in the world at this time. He had a book called The Arab Awakening in English that came out in 1938, uh, which really sort of clued in the world that there was such a thing as Arab nationalism, not just here in the Holy Land, but that this was that that Arabs had national aspirations and that oftentimes in Antonius's telling, these were across, you know, the, the, that that he, he presented this idea of sort of pan-Arabism that was kind of unknown at the time. And uh, he was a, a very brilliant man. He was a, he was a Cambridge man, as was Musa Alami. And uh, his wife, Katie, was uh, quite, um, what's the word? Independent. Independent, f- fiery. Uh, she had very st- strong opinions about a lot of things, including about, about Jews, but uh, <laughs> we need not uh, get into that. Um, later on, after the the period that's the core of my book, she actually had a long running affair with the the, the <laughs> General uh, Barker, the the head of um, British forces here in Palestine. But I digress. Uh, so they they have some some very they have a very troubled uh, relationship, and I didn't want to. I, I felt a a little bit. Occasionally, I would feel pangs of guilt for reading these love slash hate letters between them. Uh, but it, I, I did want to just show the human, the human uh, side behind some of these, uh, some of these sort of intellectual types who played such a, a central role in this in this period. There is one other, and I, I tried to make a special effort to include uh, women in this story, despite the fact that it was an even more uh, chauvinistic time than 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 the current one. Uh, and one really uh, fascinating character who I tried to follow is a woman named Blanche Dugdale, who is the niece of uh, Arthur Balfour, the famous Arthur Balfour, who, of course, delivered the Balfour Declaration. And Blanche Dugdale, uh, much like Ord Wingate, was a devout Christian and was extremely well-connected in British circles. She was probably the only, uh, the one of very, very few Gentiles who were really trusted by the Zionist leadership, but also she was extremely well-connected in the halls of power in London, and so her diaries were really, um, were really extremely valuable for me in doing this research. You were right. I forgot about her because I started. She said at the beginning of the book, if I'm not, not mistaken, and I started it so long ago because it is so really. It's like eating very rich chocolate. You want to have a little bit and then a little bit more and a little bit more. It's really I can't recommend it uh, enough. Now. I want to turn to an exclusive Times of Israel essay that we're going to publish uh, this week as well about Herbert Samuel and essentially how he kind of basically enabled uh, the biggest foe to the Zionist enterprise to rise to power. So tell us more. Yeah. So one of the really, one of the most illuminating things that I found in this research were the secret testimonies delivered to the Peel Commission that I mentioned earlier. This 1936-37 commission that that the British sent out to this to this land, and so they they took dozens of testimonies in in public and released them along with the report. But there were also dozens of testimonies that were given in secret, and which were never meant to be released. And they would have been they were meant to have been uh, destroyed at the end of this uh, commission. And uh, the secretary of this commission, a man apparently of tremendous foresight 
uh, stowed away a couple of copies of these secret testimonies and wrote, he has a handwritten message in the, in the initial pages in which he writes uh, that these should be stowed away because they represent, quote, an important chapter in the history of Palestine and the Jewish people and will no doubt be of con considerable interest to historians of the remote future. So it's thanks to this secretary of this commission that we historians of the remote future uh, have these secret testimonies. And one of the people who they call to testify in private once they're back in England is Herbert Samuel, who, I, who by this point is back in, um, in political life in Britain. But Herbert Samuel, speaking of forgotten, extremely important, compelling characters in the history of this, of this conflict, Herbert Samuel was the first Jew to serve in the British cabinet. Herbert Samuel was the author of a memo, a cabinet memo, from early 1915. So this is nearly three years before the Balfour Declaration. Uh, this memo was called The Future of Palestine. And this is the first time that the Zionist cause, the Zionist idea is placed in front of the British uh, cabinet. Again, nearly three years before the Balfour Declaration. And then he becomes the first high commissioner for Palestine. And this is a... Uh, this is a Jew and a Zionist. This is a man who's had an, an, an accomplished career in British politics. He actually goes on to be the leader of the Liberal Party, which was the main opposition party at a certain point before the rise of labor. And so, uh, so in this testimony, in the secret testimony, the first question that they ask is, why did you appoint Hajamin as the Mufti? This is the question we all, <laughs> even to this day, nearly 100 years uh, more than 100 years later, would like to know. And he basically says, of course, I, I, I'm sure your, your listeners probably already know this, but the Mufti, in addition to essentially leading this Arab revolt that's the core of my book, the Mufti notoriously goes on to ally with Hitler during the Second World War and probably would have been tried as a war criminal had certain, certain uh, historical events panned out slightly uh, differently. But he spent the war at Hitler's side in Berlin. Uh, and so... Uh, Samuel has asked, why did he appoint Hajamin as Mufti back in 1921, just after he arrived in the country? Uh, and he basically, he strikes a somewhat defensive note. Basically, the, the British had, had decided that they would try to keep as much of the Ottoman sort of apparatus as possible in the, in the, in the, they were, they were, charged with implementing this rather unpopular Balfour Declaration. Things were extremely sensitive. And so they were anything that had to do with 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 Islam, they, they, they generally tried to keep it as it was. But there was an issue. There was a problem in that the link with Constantinople, with Istanbul had been severed. And now you've got this Christian power running the land. And worse than that, this is a Christian power who's <laughs> worse than that from an Arab perspective. This is a Christian power that's uh, declared in, before the world that it intends to create a Jewish national home in this land. And so, um, again, I'll try not to get <laughs> too much in the weeds here, but the Ottoman precedent was that the Islamic, uh, basically the Islamic local leaders would have a vote uh, for who was to be uh, the Mufti. And then the authorities in Istanbul would decide from the top three who would get to be the, the Mufti of Jerusalem. And Samuel as kind of the successor of the uh, Ottoman authorities, that was the setup. So namely, the local leaders would vote for the Mufti, and then Samuel, as the new boss in town, would choose between those three. So they hold this vote, and unfortunately for Haj Amin, he comes in fourth. So he's not even in the running. And then Samuel intervened in order to get 
one or more of these uh, contenders to drop out so that the Muf- so that Hajamin could be within the top three and that he could choose him for uh, for this post. I should mention that the whole reason that this problem arose was that Haj Amin's half-brother, Kamel, had just died suddenly. And as much as the Mufti Haj Amin has a notorious reputation to this day, his predecessor, his half-brother, had extremely good ties with the British and even with the Jews. And his brother got sick and died. And Samuel, having just arrived in the country, was faced with a succession crisis. He had to appoint someone. And so he basically says, well, you know, these other guys who are in the top three, they had no qualifications to, to speak of. Whereas Haj Amin, he had studied in, in, in Cairo at Al-Azhar and he was a Hajj. He had been on, on the Hajj to Mecca and he was, uh, uh, you know, and he was supported by everyone. So that's why I appointed him. And there's a really defensive tone behind everything that he says. But of course, it's simply not true. Uh, it's simply not true that he was the only qualified member uh, of these three uh, finalists. And later on in the testimony, uh, Herbert Samuel basically says, he says, uh, and uh, here's the quote, he says, I did not want to alienate the Husseinis and their friends throughout the country, especially in places like Gaza and Acre. That is the real reason the present Mufti was appointed. So at first he tries to say that, well, he was the most qualified and this and that. The truth is that the Mufti had very, uh, that Haj Amin had very limited religious training. He was only about 25, 26 years old. His opponents in the race for Mufti were much older and much more experienced. And then later on in the testimony, Herbert Samuel just kind of speaks a little more honestly and says, look, the Husseinis are, are, are powerful. We needed to appease them. And they were lined up behind this guy. And that's why we appointed him. Yichus. Yeah. Uh, apologies for that very weedy uh, explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Oren, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. In 2017, Britain quietly released to the National Archives transcripts of secret sessions conducted by a 1936 Palestine Royal Commission. In them, the Jewish First High Commissioner for British-ruled Palestine, Herbert Samuel, explains why he chose Amin al-Husseini as Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and head of the Supreme Muslim Council. This is, of course, the Grand Mufti who spent World War II in the company of one Adolf Hitler. So check out Oren Kessler's essay on this subject on the Times of Israel. It makes for fascinating reading. Special thanks to our wonderful intern, Charlie Summers, who helps me with the transcripts for the What Matters Now series. This episode was recorded at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem with sound technician Jamal Rishek. What Matters Now is produced and edited by The Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.